I'd like to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of John, and this morning we will be in chapter 2, and if you need a Bible, the pew Bibles in front of you, that would be page number 910 is where you'll find John chapter 2, and I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 down through verse 12. And you may follow along as I read. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Verse 6, Now there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs, John tells us. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Those who have ears to hear, let them hear and let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you once again now at the portion of this service where we seek to understand your word and we seek to be obedient to it. Lord, give us the answer to those two questions. What are we to understand? How are we to obey? Lord, make us good listeners and may we listen to the master teacher. And Lord, may we do this for your glory and honor, we ask this in your strong name. Amen. Well, let's organize what we just read into three different components. You'll see those easily in, in the passage in front of us. And we'll use these as a way to pace ourselves as we move through. But first is the occasion. And that is a wedding in Cana. A wedding feast. We'll talk about that first. Second of all... There's an intermission uh, between the setting, which is the feast, and what happens at the feast. And this little intermission is Christ's conversation with his mother about a problem at the wedding feast that they had run out of wine. And then finally, we'll look at the sign itself, the miracle of turning water into wine and the difference it made in those who witnessed that miracle and the two different groups that saw it, one that knew it was a miracle and the others who did not. And we'll look at those in that order. So let's begin with the occasion 
And we'll go right back to the first verse where it says, on the third day. And we've been studying chapter 1 where it talked about, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And there are those that believe that this third day, in addition to those other four days, would equal seven days. That this is the completion of the first week of Christ's ministry. There are those that may uh, beg to differ with that way. And it's tough for us uh, to understand how they counted their days. For one thing, sunset was the end of their day, not midnight. And the way they count them up. Uh, is a little different than the way we do but be that as it may on that day they were at a wedding that's the setting and it takes place in a place called Cana and that in the location of the Galilee then we're told the number of people that were invited this is a large wedding feast but these specific people were there Christ's mother Mary Jesus was there and also his disciples So the first thing we want to make mention of, make sure we understand, and then ask some questions about it is, why was a wedding feast chosen as the first place Jesus would show, at least some who were in attendance there, his power over the natural world? This is his first miracle or his first sign. Remember, John calls them signs. We learned that earlier, that The other gospel writers may use powers or mighty works. Uh, We call them all miracles uh, because they're supernatural things that we cannot do. But John chooses to use the word sign. And that's on purpose because in each of these miracles that he describes, he was there as an eyewitness, they're a sign pointing to something. Remember, he's writing in order to convince you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in believing you might have life through his name. That's his purpose. So all of these signs are pointing as evidence to that claim that he hopes that you will believe. So this is a sign. That's his first of seven signs in John's Gospel. It's interesting that this takes place at a wedding. His last sign, where he raises Lazarus from the dead will take place at a funeral so a funeral is the beginning or the end a wedding is the beginning of his seven signs as John describes them in his story Uh, they point to something nothing haphazard about this record or how it's put together there's something significant about the sign its placement and its occasion John's more careful of a writer than just to leave this to some um, arbitrary uh, order or to put them together as loose leaf they all connect in some way so what is a wedding what do we do at weddings you've been to weddings I think most of you have probably been to many weddings I've had the occasion to perform a very few number of weddings uh, I've attended many more but they usually center around a bride and a groom And that bride and groom are going to promise themselves to each other in faithfulness in front of a crowd of witnesses. Uh, My father used to describe it as you're going to promise yourselves to each other until you die in front of a room full of people, including God Almighty. You need to understand this is serious. And it's among the most solemn promises uh, humanity has to, to promise one another. It's quite a significant occasion, and the promise 
of faithfulness is the object. And the young man and the young woman seem to be the center of that object and promise of faithfulness while all watch. That's what's going on. And this picture here, that of a wedding, we also need to remind ourselves in Scripture that this is the, the way that Jesus and his Father God choose to describe Christ's love for his people in his church. In Revelation, does it not describe that as Christ the groom, the bridegroom, and the church as his bride? And then you've got passages like Paul explaining to husbands that you are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. So when we look at the picture of a wedding, those of us who are Christians that know our Bibles are also reminded of the love and faithfulness of Christ to his church. And that's the epitome of promise because that will never be broken. All the promises here on earth between husbands or wives are patterned after the faithfulness of Christ to his church. So this is what Jesus is attending. And all of these things uh, bring to our mind these, these pictures. Now, Jesus is invited to this. He's accepted the invitation, and he's there among the others in attendance. That must say something as well. I don't know if you've ever thought through that. What would it be like to have Jesus attend your wedding well he attended at least one and we have it on record here but in the beginning after man was created and woman was created for man and that man and that woman walked literally in relationship with God in the cool of the evening we know the story from Genesis their relationship with the Lord was perfect in perfect faithfulness but then after they disobeyed his command, their disobedience broke their relationship with the Lord. It would never be the same. And would you not agree that even the best of marriages here on this earth are marked by the scars of brokenness, uh, of dysfunction in some measure, of, of lies, even betrayal? So you've got a difference between Christ and his church and the definition of faithfulness promised. And then all our attempts, as good as they are, to model after that are, are, are not the same. There's a big difference there. So the idea of what Christ has in his mind while he's attending this wedding and the best efforts of those who are there, including the bride and the groom, are something completely different. And that's where I think it's interesting. To think that the man the prophets called the wonderful counselor is attending a wedding. Would that intimidate you? I know marriage counseling is intimidating itself, right? I didn't have any. I'm a pastor's son, and when I asked about it, Dad said, What do you think I've been doing your whole life? <laughs> uh, and then he's the one who performed the ceremony. And uh, I remember it to this day um, and how short it was and all the trouble that went along with getting everything just right to watch it fly by in about 20 minutes. But to think that someone, 
a counselor, a professional would be there in attendance. But that's nothing. Jesus sitting there knows everything about this young couple. Every last motive of their heart, every thought, good or ill, the motivation between what's going on. Now, in this culture, some weddings were arranged. It's not the way we do things here much. But just to think of the dynamic of the one man in the room who knows what everybody else does not. He even knows what's coming down the road for this young couple who usually, at least standing there, think they've prepared themselves. Married couples would tell them, no, class begins after the honeymoon, not before. But everyone else there in attendance, their best hopes are bound up in this couple. And hopefully they've had their training. Everything's been put into motion. Years worth of teaching has gone into their lives. And everybody waits and hopes with their best wishes that this will be as beautiful as the ceremony itself. But then again, we know that about half of them don't end like that. That's statistics. That's how that works. And we're reminded, if not by Weddings and marriage were reminded more, more dramatically that there's something broken about this world that desperately needs to be fixed. So sometimes you talk about a wedding and, and, and the situation of the wedding and should I attend the wedding and what does my attendance at the wedding say about the wedding and is, does that give my endorsement, my stamp of approval to be here because not all weddings and relationships are as uh, simplistic as they used to be. But what about the man who's there? And their vows are different than our vows. But just imagine if it went something like this. There anyone who has reason why this couple should not be lawfully married. Speak now or forever hold your peace. Of all weddings, I think someone was there qualified to say... I have a reason. They're both lost. They're both bent toward each other, not themselves rather than each other. In fact, humanly speaking, without some divine intervention, this union, relationship, or the promise of faithfulness has no hope. It's not going to work. It's going to be, at least in some way, a failure compared to what I had in mind when I created this whole place. He could have said that. But he didn't say that. We don't have that on record. So what do we think of that? That, that's That's a new way to look at perhaps what it must have been. At least the setting from which Jesus performs his first miracle. Why was it that Jesus could sit there and keep his peace? Because there's something that he knows that... Perhaps no one else in the room knows yet, not the way it's going to happen, but about three years from that point, he would go to Calvary and purchase for this planet the possibility of keeping promises and being faithful and living righteously. But it has nothing to do with them, their self-righteousness or their own efforts. It'll have to do everything with his sinless sacrifice to purchase for this world and those who are interested the ability to have that curse of sin broken. To take them back to the garden in that relationship that was, was 
declared good. That's how Jesus sits at this wedding. And that's how any of our weddings have any hope. Right? Because of what he would do on the cross. And that is why, consequently, we see the Bible saying that God hates divorce. Because it's a fingerprint on the picture of God's promised faithfulness to us. When a promise here on earth, especially among Christians, falls apart, that blurs the image. But then you tell me, what is a better demonstration of God's grace? Or something that could make God's gospel more attractive than watching fallen, broken people work their way through the obstacle course of marriage, repairing fissures in that relationship for God's glory. That's about as good as it gets as far as where the rubber meets the road, that you can actually maintain a relationship with someone as close as a spouse. I'd like to know what you've got that allows you to do that. Probably some of the most evangelistic (coughs) scaffolding to be able to say a word for Jesus would be something like that. Nothing makes the gospel more attractive than kept promises. And really the whole thing. And for anyone in need of premarital counseling, postmarital counseling, whatever you want to call it, the whole thing lives or dies based on an understanding of grace. Because a relationship's going to need plenty of forgiveness. And if we don't understand that we've been forgiven a far greater debt that we could never repay, then we might get hung up at times in forgiving others, especially the ones closest to us. Beginning with words like, I'm sorry, and I forgive you, and meaning it, even if you don't feel like it, because you've got a place to put it. Think back. Here's how you tie it all together. Jesus is looking at an imperfect couple, right? He does not object. Why? Because he sees both the good and the bad and knows what to do with both. Usually relationships start to break down with both sides of that coin. You, you, you grow blind to the good in people. There's good in people. It's called common grace. Even in the most lost of people, we see elements of, of common grace. It's the reason why we haven't destroyed each other completely already. God gives us good things, and we can see good things in each other, and we, we celebrate those things and see them as the image of God as these people are created in. And you tell me, what was it that attracted you to the person you're married to in the first place? Something that you saw as good. You say, it gets on my nerves now. Well, you're, you're not able to see the good. Jesus saw the good, and he was celebrating at a wedding feast that, that this is good. This is the way I choose to explain to the rest of the world what I see as good in my church that I've died for. But then also, what do you do with the bad stuff? You take it to the same place Jesus would take all the bad stuff. Three years later, he took it all to the cross and paid for it, right? You say, well, I can't take someone else's sin to the cross. You're correct about that. That's between them and the Lord. 
But all the collateral damage that affects you as a result of that sin, you very well can take to the cross. And you can leave it there. You say, it doesn't make me feel much better. That's because you don't have the ability to delete emotions or memories. But there's someone at the cross who knows exactly what that's like because he felt the sting of all of it, including the bit that he took there that has your name on it. So if you can remember all that, what to do with the good and what to do with the bad, praise the Lord for the good, take the bad to the cross, we might actually have something the world's interested in. That is where Jesus chose to do his first miracle. Quite a special occasion. Lots of themes going on here. So let's take that back of our head and look for this intermission here. Because the occasion's been described as a party, everybody's there. But then Jesus has a one-on-one conversation with his mother of all people. And at some point during the wedding feast... The wine ran out, and that's what Mary comes to Jesus to discuss. Now, the scope of this is tough for any of us to understand because we don't throw parties like Jewish folks in the first century threw parties. Their wedding feast went on for days. Lots of food, lots of people. And their hospitality was, was part of their culture unlike ours today. So to run out of wine would be a disaster of massive proportions that we probably can't even appreciate. But verse 3, the wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now there's, there's more going on to this. And if all we had was verse 3, we'd have a very difficult time understanding what Mary wanted. Other than just telling him, hey, by the way, in case you didn't know, they've run out of wine. Well, she wants something here. And we know that because of what Jesus says in response to her. When he says this, or asks the question, what does this have to do with me? My hour is not yet come. But the idea of the wine running out. You know, I wondered whether or not I should do this. Because we haven't had an opportunity to do it yet. And you don't get but so many opportunities. But we did say the word wine, didn't we? And usually this magnificent story gets talked about more having to do with that one word than any of the rest of the stuff that's going on here. And some would like to debate whether or not that alcohol or no alcohol or wine or like our wine or what was the wine. Did Jesus drink wine? Can I drink wine? And it goes on and on and on. Uh, So I thought, well, maybe we'd take a minute or two and try to put some of that aside just by understanding what it is. With the scholarship we've got from inside the Bible and outside the Bible, cultural studies, there's really no way around the fact that this wine was a fermented beverage. Uh, It was different than what we drink. Likely, based on the same scholarship, it was cut by as much as three times, so it was quite watered down in comparison with what we have. Um... Whether or not Jesus had any of it at this, we don't know. But he's the one that created it. And when others tasted it, they said it was the good kind. So he didn't give them less than the best. But as far as the Bible's treatment on that, alcoholic beverages, you can really, depending on where you go, hear all types of things. Some would say absolutely not a drop for anyone ever. 
That's not what the Bible says. Unless you're a king. They shouldn't because on 24-7 they're supposed to make decisions for the rest of the kingdom under their responsibility. Proverbs says that wine is a mocker. Psalms says that wine is a gift to be enjoyed. So the Bible, which one is true? Is it a gift to be enjoyed or is it a mocker that will ruin my life? It's both. Can be. It's a gift to be enjoyed. But it's also a mocker. And I suppose probably wisdom is the one thing to determine between the two. And the group at most risk in this would be younger folks without the wisdom. They're the ones you worry about. They're the ones that need to read Proverbs and make sure they understand. Because at every point in our lives, the rules that restrain us as young people, like an age limit here in America, or parents' rules of the house, or whatever school you go to, you'll find a a spot in life where you don't have any rules on you anymore. It's your choice. You're going to need wisdom. It'd be a good idea to watch other people too. When it says wine is a mocker, that's because... When someone shows up late or loses their job or uh, destroys their family, that Proverbs is making fun of them in their shipwrecked state. It will do that to you. I've got fathers back in Virginia who could tell you stories of their children who ruined their lives. Both alive and dead. That's what this says. But here, don't be afraid of it. Look at it like other things. What about food? Is that a gift to be enjoyed? Can you eat whatever you want, whenever you want, however you want, as much as you want, and be healthy? No, you need wisdom for that. What about sexuality? We're talking about a wedding here. Whatever you want, whenever you want, with whomever you want. No. That's a world of hurt. You'll damage yourself in ways you'll never forget. So there's some responsibility and wisdom that goes along with the gifts God gives us. It's the same here. So that's free on the side in case you wondered what I thought. It's a gift from God to be handled carefully with wisdom. Wisdom that comes from God. Not what's best for me while I'm alive that will maximize my fun. But what's best as a servant called by God to be a minister to others. That would be the best way to handle it. Now, back to this conversation. What Mary meant, we have indication here by Jesus saying, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Why My hour has not yet come. Now, first of all, we'll rule out any interpretation that would include any disrespect or unkindness on Christ's part as to his mother. Uh, using that term there, woman, that's not the term that people would have used to describe their mother. It's a little different than that. It's more formal. It'd be more like ma'am. Uh, I was with my mother yesterday. I didn't refer to her as woman when I walked in the door. <laughs> my dad doesn't. None of my brothers or sisters do. Uh, but when mom asked me a question since I was a kid, I always say yes ma'am or no ma'am. It's a term of respect. That's the same as what's going on here. And then he says... What does this have to do with me? And this is not smart aleck either. Like, I, I, you touch that last. It's not my problem. That's not why I'm here. That's what I might say before I got smacked by my father <laughs> to my mother. That's Jacob's job. Or Kelly made that mess. I don't know. 
That's not what's going on here. What he says here in the last phrase ties it all together. My hour has not yet come. So what Jesus is saying in regards to whatever it is that Mary is seeking or suggesting. Jesus is saying it is not in keeping with the purpose for which he's here. That's what is meant by that hour. My hour's not yet come. All of prophecy was pointing to that hour where he would pay for the sins of the world by his sacrificial death. That's why he's here. And he's saying to Mary, this doesn't tie in with the purpose for which I'm here. Not like this, not this way. So if we go to chapter 7, 8, 12, 13, and 17, we keep seeing this phrase, his hour had not yet come. Finally, in chapter 17, he says, Father, my hour has, not, has now come, uh, so he's departing out of this world. Again, John is beautiful in his, the way he ties things together. The first time Jesus talks about his hour, he's talking to his mother. The last time he talks about his hour, he's talking to his father. But all throughout the middle of John, we're learning what the hour is about, and that is that he's going to die in our place. So when he says, what does this have to do with me or the reason why I'm here, my hour has not yet come, he's saying it doesn't fit with the purpose for which I am here. So what do you suppose she is asking? And this is where we have to speculate. We, we don't have much to go on here, but it seems to have something to do with the insufficiency of wine. And we could suppose, give her the benefit of the doubt, it's not just to save the wedding. And she's close to him. She knows he can do certain things no one else knows, so she's asking a favor. And if anybody would get a favor out of Jesus, it'd probably be his mother. I don't think that's what's going on. But maybe, perhaps, she's been holding this secret for about as long as she can stand it. Now, she's the one that talked about in the Magnificat. The, the, the world is going to be blessed by me. So she knows Jesus unlike anyone else. Don't know what she knows, but it's more than the rest. And we also know that she's probably lived under suspicion for somewhat because there are those who don't believe that that's Joseph's son. There's some controversy surrounding even his birth. So there might be a shadow of, 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 of shame over her family. And maybe she just like Jesus for wants to get the credit that she thinks he deserves. That would be fitting with him saying, Mom, it's not time for that yet. The hour hadn't come. Maybe she's in this wedding. Maybe it's a family wedding. Maybe running out of wine would be more shame onto the family. And she wants him to finally clear this up for everybody. You're not who they think you are. Maybe that's what it was. But either way, what she, the desire of her heart was, Jesus is saying it couldn't be satisfied by the way she suggests but then he does something most remarkable. He actually performs the miracle. So it's not like, Mom, you're wrong. I'm not doing that. It's, Mom, there's more to it than that. And get the servants together. Because the first thing she says to the servants is, Do whatever he says. <laughs> and then it looks like we're going to have that miracle. So that's your intermission. What do we learn from that? I'm not sure, but... We might ask ourselves the question, how many of our requests to Jesus have to do with our personal interests rather than the business for which he came to this earth to die? How many times would he say, 
What does that have to do with me? My hour's come, and you know that much. So how does that fit my hour having come and gone and sins paid for? Be a good exercise. Well, let's look at the sign. The sign, John tells us its value there in verse 11. And that is that his disciples would believe and Jesus would manifest his glory. But before we get to that, that's where we'll close. Let's, uh, let's look at how he went about it. That's verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. So the jars had a purpose and it was Jewish pur- purification. Ceremonial washing. Whether or not that was... Uh, for individual baths or if it was for washing hands. We don't know, but there were six of them. And it says here in the ESV, they do the math for us, holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So six stone water jars uh, for washing purposes, but they were now used to hold water to the brim to the tune of 20 to 30 gallons times six is somewhere between 120 to 180 gallons of water. That's going to make quite a bit of wine. That's Christ's contribution to this wedding feast. When Christ brings a gift, he brings a big one, right? (laughs) This was a large gathering, too. You can just imagine who's going to drink all this. Well, there's a lot of people there, and perhaps for days. So look at verse 8. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. From time to time, you'll hear me say, look for the drama in the passage, because that's where, that's where we really identify with, with the story, right? Everybody likes a good story, and the more dramatic the story, the better the story. This is a real story with real people. What do you think it's like? To watch something like that take place. You've been involved. You filled the jar with water. And then Jesus says, all right, now you take a cup and take it to the master of the feast. See what he thinks. Now right there, that's different from the rest of us. If it had been your miracle, you'd probably take the cup, right? But Jesus says, no, you take it, one of the servants. And look at the part that I think is interesting. The master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and he did not know where it came from. came from the wine supplier, as far as he knew. He had no idea. But then look what's there in brackets. Though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew, they know a secret. They've just seen something that's better than anything they've ever seen their whole life. It's a miracle. And I think this could be used as a reminder of those who've been Christians for a while. You've got some experience in serving the Lord in His church, in His kingdom. And every now and then, do you not have the opportunity occasionally to get to see with your own eyeballs where a miracle comes from? Why? Because you were in on it. You put that class together. You decided Awana would be a good idea. You put together lessons for VBS where a child said, that's the way, I f- that's what I want to do. I, I, I want to be saved. 
you know. Others might not know. People coming in and out and going all different directions might have no clue. But you know why? Because you were in on it. And the same is true on other times. It's reverse. You're just the, the end result of a recipient. But you have no idea where it came from. Others were. They were involved. And there's nothing like it when you get to see behind the scenes what Jesus is doing. I think that's amazing. So the master of the feast, after he tasted the wine, he called the bridegroom, said, everyone serves the good wine first, and the people have drunk freely, then the poor or wine. And this gives notion to the idea that it's an alcoholic beverage. After they've had enough, their taste buds aren't as keen as they were before. And everybody does this, he says. Everyone does it. Everyone always gives the good stuff up front. And then when you don't know any better, they give you the poorer stuff. Now, does that sound like the way you treat your party guests? Is that the way you do with your house? You clean up everything first, right? And you wouldn't put them in a dirty room, of course. But we do like to fudge with things like that, especially if we're the ones paying for it or, or however it goes. But this guy is amazed Maybe his mind's blown. I don't know. But that's what impresses him because this is different than the way everybody else does it. You did it backwards. You took the good stuff and you saved it till the end. Now, when I was a student at Liberty University, uh, I was there for about three years. Started at Word of Life, transferred in. There was this thing that they would do a couple times a year. They call it College for a Weekend. And that's where all the guests come in, prospective students, that they try to get you to twist their arm into being there. They put them in your room, so you've got to listen to them snore and gripe and <laughs> cry because they miss home or whatever. But there's one good thing about college for a weekend. You eat better than you've <laughs> ever eaten the rest of the time. They pull out all the good food at the beginning. At the beginning of the relationship. And we had a hard time saying, oh, you like that? That's not what you'll be getting. <laughs> Once your parents are actually paying for this, it's going to be awful. It's army food, mass-produced stuff. It's awful. We don't call the Marriott Mary Rot for nothing. <laughs> but they, they would hold out the other stuff till later. After... Everything has been rolled out on red carpet for college for a weekend. Do you think that's the idea similar to what this guy's used to? They all do it. Everybody does it like that. But is it something the church should take their cue from? Let's say with guests. What about churches who seem to purposefully in an attempt to attract people to their buildings and their services, they pitch a message something like this. This is all about you. We're here for you. We're to serve you. Are you comfortable? Can we make this any easier for you? And then in time, they get frustrated. And those who stuck around are even more confused when the message subtly changes away from this is all about you to... We now expect you to act like this is all about him. That's probably categorized as a bait and switch in some salesman's catalog somewhere. Jesus never did any of that. 
it was always backward. But the first person, Andrew, who says, I want to follow you instead of John now, he asks, what is it that you want? And we're going to see this over and over and over again. Jesus never strings anyone along. In fact, he's pretty abrupt with folks. You think you want to follow me? You need to know there's nothing here to see. In fact, I don't have anything. Then he says things like, take up your cross and follow me. Dying daily to yourself. Because this is all about the will of my Father. So what if a church took their cue from that? And all they ever did from the beginning at hello, this is all about him. And over time, you broaden that and deepen that and pour light on that. And maybe occasionally you'll have somebody come by and say, you've blown my mind here. (laughs) You're saving the good stuff till now. I'm learning more than I've ever learned before because the focus is on him. I think that's what's going on. What do you think? From beginning to end, is Jesus not the better that's been, that's been saved? You've got the old sacrificial system. He's going to change all that. You've got the old law and, and failure was all it showed you how to do. He's going to give you grace. He shows up to this wedding without even blowing a trumpet. He's changed the whole thing and everybody's impressed because it's all backward as far as what we would expect. This is unlike Jesus. Well, what about the sign? And this is the highlight of the entire passage. Back to the value of the sign. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what he did was he gave them a glimpse of his glory they had not yet seen. And those who saw it, which would be his disciples... Perhaps the servants. They believed. Not everybody was in on that miracle. I would think. This is speculation. There were more people there that did not know what went on. But those who did know. His mother and his disciples. They saw a piece of him they haven't seen yet. And it says that they believed in him. Now of course they had to believe in him in order to follow him. That they were there meant that those five disciples by now. They believe him. So are they believing again? Are they, uh, what do they say sometimes? You come down for salvation or uh, rededicate your, are they rededicating their faith here after the miracle? I don't think I would describe it like that at all. In fact, I think these are humans relating to another human who happens to be God at the same time in stages of awareness like the regular routine development of relationships we have with each other every day. Do you know your wife better today than you did yesterday? If that's yes, do you love her more today on the basis of the more you know about her today than you did yesterday? I hope that is yes. That's the way that works. I know much more about my wife. I love her much more. A lot of that love we gave each other at the altar was on credit. You're a great person, I'll know you better, and I'm sure all this will actually have reasons instead of just, you know, all the, all the stuff that seems to, you know, fly around like sparkles when you don't know any better, right? But in your relationship to Jesus, do you know more about Him than you do, did yesterday? Does that increase your belief in Him? Does that make a difference? The more of them you see, the bigger he is, the bigger he is, the more in awe you are. 
And that's the same as anywhere in Scripture where it talks about our security, our assurance of faith. You know, it never talks about it in the past. It always talks about it in the present. What do you believe now? What I believe now is so, is so different than what I believed the day I walked forward and trusted Jesus as Savior. I'm glad He gives me credit. It's my ignorance. It's not on His end. And He chooses to reveal Himself to me more and more. Here's the big question. We've just studied another passage of Scripture. What have you seen in it about Jesus that you didn't see before? And is your believing in Him increasing as a result of it? Are you along with the disciples? And can you say, I believe. Maybe you're not ready to confess that He's the Son of God. But maybe you're ready to confess there's more here than I thought when we started this lesson. I'm intrigued. You're different than everybody. You save the good stuff till last. This is impressive. I'll be back next week. I'll continue to study. I'll continue to come and see as he invited the disciples to do. And remember, not to end on a bad note, there's two things that always happen whenever we hear God's word. We are either softened by it, drawn closer to him, or we are hardened by it and we push ourselves away. There's no neutral no neutral sermon. It's the question today. What did you see? And what do you believe? With that said, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the study in your word. A more lengthy passage today. But Lord, there's so much in it. So much to see. So much to be reminded of. Of your grace. And your, your character. Your, your personality. The, the way you do things. We thank you. For being careful with us, patient with us, and pulling us along like a good father. Lord, we thank you for saving the good till later. And not enamoring our, our fleshly appetites with, with some form of an entertainment or something that was passing or trivial. Lord, you loved us enough to tell us the truth in stages. And to be honest with us. Lord, we ask that you bless those contemplating these claims of truth, the truth claims of Jesus. And Lord, may they, like the disciples and all the others, as they see your glory, would they give you their trust and belief. Lord, we thank you for our time together in church today. And we ask that you continue to bless us as we wrap things up, as we pray, as we sing a, a goodbye. All of this for your glory, in your name, amen. Thank you. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we've heard your word today, we know that you will provide. Lord, on this cold and dreary day, you've given us a warm facility. And more importantly, you've given us the warmth of your word that warms our heart. Lord, we're grateful for that, and thank you. Lord, we lift up our mission of the week, Pioneer's mission, Sonia and David Cram, their mission in Cambodia. Lord, we just ask your blessings upon them, that you will support them and keep them safe. And Lord, we just are grateful for the work that they do. Lord, we just ask as we leave here today that we will trust and obey you as we move into this new week and bring us back safely next week. 
Lead, guide, and direct us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.